0: Today's episode of The Big Picture on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by World Central Kitchen. Their relief team is working across America to safely distribute individually packaged fresh meals in communities that need support. They're now serving tens of thousands of meals daily in some of our biggest cities like New York and LA. They're launching initiatives across America to deliver fresh, hot meals to hospitals and clinics, fighting on the front lines while keeping local restaurants in business as well. You can directly help the heroes in hospitals and clinics who are fighting for us, and you can keep your local restaurants alive. Please go to theringer.com backslash WCK to donate. We're trying to raise $250,000, and if you have the means, it's an unbelievably great and useful cause that helps our hospital heroes, emergency workers, and local restaurants. Please give whatever you can. The money goes directly to World Central Kitchen, and it's a charitable donation. Once again, that's theringer.com backslash WCK. I'm Sean Fennessy, and this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about Beastie Boys. That's right. Beastie Boys made a movie, Beastie Boys Story, which is directed by Spike Jones and available to watch right now on Apple TV+. Plus. If you are like me and worship Beastie Boys, you need to watch this movie. Later in the show, I'll be talking to Ad-Rock and Mike D of Beastie Boys about their movie, their history, their favorite fruits, how they're doing in quarantine, the New York Knicks documentaries that they want to see a bunch of other stuff as I tried to keep them focused on our conversation. I really love these guys. Beastie Boys are my favorite band ever, and it isn't even really close. So to talk about them before we get to them, I asked the Vic Colfari to my Alessandro Allegra to join me. It's Chris Ryan. Hi, Chris. I've always seen
1: myself more as a Nathan Wind guy. Cochise. Cochise, Yeah. (laughs) No, I've been uh, been waiting my whole dumb life to do this podcast, so let's go.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm very glad you're here with me. I can't think of anybody else I'd want to have here. Other than you, except maybe Mike D and Ad Rock, and they're coming later. So, when I say Beastie Boys, what's the first thing that pops in your head, Chris?
1: Oh, um, probably the invention of cool. So, I think one thing that we've talked about a lot over the last like twelve to eighteen months, we've done a lot of uh, Quentin Tarantino podcasts. We we celebrated a lot of his movies on the rewatchables. We talked about them on big picture. Done um podcasts with him, and something that comes up a lot is kind of how he gave us a, like a vocabulary or a language to through which to understand culture and understand the world and i think the beastie boys are equally responsible for that in both of our lives in terms of introducing us to so much music and so much other culture that wound up becoming just part of our like way in which we relate to the rest of the world through these like kung fu and exploitation movies through rap reggae punk rock uh weird funk you know like all, like it it just basically made Collectors and fans out of out, out of us.
0: At the risk of stepping on music exists. I wanted to ask you why you think you and and I to some extent too are so interested in figures who are all about basically like recombinant culture. You know who take all the disparate parts of stuff that they love and smash it all together because that is the thing that the movie and then returning to all of this music that I've listened to over and over and over and over again in my life that I have thought about is like wow they really just jammed all the stuff they like together to make something new. What is it about that?
1: The second part of what you said is the most important thing. You think about the people that we really respond to. Wu-Tang Clan, Quentin Tarantino, Beastie Boys. A, it means we're very basic (laughs) and very predictable. (laughs) And B... It's the most important part is finding the second thing, the thing that you're going to make out of all this shit. And that's what makes me so excited is when someone uses all these postmodern tools and these reconstructs all these things out of this cultural ephemera to say something else. You know, Wu-Tang Clan took all those Kung Fu movies and took all those samples, but made something that could only have been made in Staten Island. You know, Beck could only have made the music he made with the experience that he had. And the Beastie Boys could only have been the Beastie Boys by combining bad brains with Run DMC. Yeah,
0: and I feel like it's not a mistake that so much of what we do at The Ringer and so much of of what you and I have been trying to do in our lives is basically celebrate and be enthusiastic about the things that we care about. And I feel like these artists are the same way. You know, if if you think about Beastie Boys and you even look at the way that they tell their story in the movie, it's just what we really liked was The Clash. And Grandmaster Flash and Cheech and Chong. And we were trying to find a way to make all those things make sense together. And I, I feel the same way about what we do every day. I feel the same way. Well, you, you and I love the NBA and we love uh, Top Gun. And we love, uh, well, I love devs. I don't know how you feel about <laughs> devs, but, um, you know, and just trying to find a way to make all those things fit together. So I feel like I have aped. And 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 tried to copy a lot of what those guys do, and I feel like a kinship to their their mission, their
1: creative project. Absolutely, I mean, like you and I. I I, I don't mean to make it sound like you and I are the Beastie Boys here, but you no, and I, no, no, I think, no. <laughs> I think that we use the internet the way other people would use a sampler, right? And like we draw in all these different media. We take YouTube videos. We take a picture. And I think it was probably more the case before we started working professionally together in an editorial capacity. But we would have like Tumblrs and blog spots. And you would just kind of like throw a picture of Steve McQueen up in an article you were writing about Ghostface. And it would have some sort of relationship. And I think that that was our way of kind of continuing along this tradition of mixing and matching different pieces of culture to say something about yourself. The thing that you said that I think is probably to me like one of the most important parts of the movie that will not go very remarked upon because a lot of it is going to be spent talking about Yauk and it should be because this is very much, I think, an homage to him and a real moving tribute to their friend. But when Mike D says in the beginning of the movie that like he was just this weird kid who found the clash, not only is that like that's the origin story for a lot of people who like they find that one band, whether it's the dead or the clash or you know, Run DMC or whoever it is that makes them think that they are now all of a sudden not alone in the world. The Clash is like a really, really important template for the Beastie Boys because they are basically um, a crossroads group, a marketplace at a crossroads group. It's where all these different cultures are coming and they're setting up their wares, and you can pick and choose off of these tables, and then you go home and you make something out of it. And that's what the Clash did too. I mean, you can make a lot of arguments about um, appropriation. And whether or not the people who the Clash were taking from or or paying homage to were po- properly compensated for uh, the work that they did, um, and the same thing could go for the Beastie Boys, but I think a lot more people know about Lee Perry because of the Beastie Boys than not, you know. And and that's like a really really important act in in culture.
0: Everything is about timing too. I think about when they hit the scene and who they were working with, and. On the one hand, I guess there's an, an appropriation question. I, I think that they've moved past that so effectively because they were just literally there with Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin and Run-DMC yeah. making music together and like they were a part of something that was essentially punk at the end of its first true like lightning rod phase at, yeah, at the New end York of the hardcore first decade. basically. Yes. Yeah. And and rap at the dawn. You know, I mean, they weren't there necessarily in in the parks in the South Bronx, but you know, 1980 but well, Cookie Puss was getting
1: played on the radio. Yeah.
0: Yes, yes. And there's that great moment in the movie where Africa Bambada is asked about Cookie Puss by one of the members of the Beastie Boys. And you can see, like, they're there. They're there in the moment. And they're going to Dancetaria and, you know, performing for white people, introducing them to rap in a way. And yeah. that couldn't have happened if they if it was just five years earlier or five years later. The same is true for The Clash. You know, it's like they arrived at a time when the world was ready to hear a rock band try to play reggae and what that means for what the future of reggae. Um, there's something also about this specific approach to the world, though, that jumps out to me, which is it's not just this is what we like. It's this is what we like. And I don't care if you don't like it. And I, don't, I actually don't care if you don't get it. Because when I think about the things that I knew when I first heard the band, it was a, you, could, you could fit it inside of a very small box. I just did my cultural reference points, the music that I knew about, the the records, the comedy, everything that they were throwing in I wouldn't say that I discovered them because they were sampled for three seconds on a on a record on Paul's Boutique, but they were a window. You know, I had never heard of Sadahara O until I heard the Beastie Boys rap about him. You know, like there's so much in their music, the sampling, the lyric writing, even if it isn't, their songs are very rarely like high minded. You know, they're not necessarily pursuits of big ideas, but they put big ideas in front of you just by dint of what they were interested in. And I, I liked that kind of take it or leave it quality that they bring to it. And that I feel like that really comes out in the movie too, don't you think?
1: Yeah, it's only a couple of people are lucky enough to have other people care about the thing that they care about. You know, you can you can play the game and you can try to ride the wave of what's popular at any given moment. But it's so weird because what the Beastie Boys did, especially once they moved to LA, I think wound up having such an incredibly profound formative effect on all the culture that comes after it. But it... So it winds up being underrated as as to what a zag that was, how crazy it was for those guys to be like, yeah, we're going to leave New York, we're going to leave behind rap, we're going to go to Capitol from Def Jam, and we're going to work with these two producers that basically no one's ever heard of, and assemble these like really out there, incongruous samples to build together a new sound that we're going to use to define us for the next couple of decades. The other thing I wanted to talk about, because I think it's probably also a reason why you and I like them so much, is that, and this comes across very much in the movie, is how much they combine the personal and the professional and how much their work was an extension of their friendship. And you know, I I like to think of a lot of my work as an extension of my friendship with you. And um, I really loved the amount that they would reference. The Beastie Boys were essentially about getting together, talking shit, getting some takeout, Talking some more shit, skating, and then making music, and that's great. That's the project. The project was their friendship together, and the music was the result. yeah, and it was not strategy,
0: you know, like when you talk to them, they're kind of blissfully unaware of how it worked out the way that it did, and i don't I don't think it's false modesty; they're just like we literally were just doing what we thought was cool and mm-hmm. fun, and we were not market testing our approach to the world. I mean, a lot of this is obviously happening at the beginning of a lot of cultural changes. So there was nothing to really measure it against in the first place. But even beyond that, even as they got more and more success and they started moving into the 90s and, and even the 2000s, you just get the impression that they were such a self-contained and self-involved in the good way kind of unit that I, I don't know. I always, I just really looked up to that. I really looked up to the idea of saying like, this may not be fashionable or it may just seem a little bit left of center or even it might be deemed like somewhat inappropriate at times. But they were they were trying to find ways to do it in ways that were meaningful and true to them, that I think is, I don't know, it's its very a very, very intoxicating concept to me. It remains that even to this day.
1: I think my favorite, a lot of my favorite people who make shit are ones who are very, very competitive, but very, very skeptical of fame. And, you know, the BC Boys, I think, were making their best music at a time when a lot of mainstream artists were still really uneasy about their relationship to corporations and about their relationship to advertising and about their relationship to politics and, and, and a lot of those other things. And especially uneasy about their relationship to celebrity and fame. Yet they were super competitive. They wanted to make really important records. When they made videos, they wanted their videos to be the best. When they performed at Lollapalooza or if they went on the MTV Video Music Awards, they were like, we wanted people to be like the Beastie Boys house that shit. And that was like, it was like that kind of ethic of like really badass New Yorker with like somewhat indie rocker aversion to any kind of like responsibility that I really responded to.
0: Me too. We're going to talk about our top five favorite songs. Before we get into that, I think we should talk about the videos and we should talk about the albums very briefly. So you mentioned, you know, when they made videos, they wanted to make the best videos. Their videos were always very handmade. They were always very clever seemed like similarly they were following their own path in a discreet way. Um, I think of them really as a very, very important MTV band. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not sure if they would have worked as a band at large without the visual, almost like comic aspect of their persona. And that includes Fight for Your Right to Party, but it also includes So What You Want, and then of course Sabotage. And the way that they kind of marked, forgive this phrase, but like hipster cinema over sure. time in yeah. the way that they made movies and collaborating with Spike Jones and I mean what do you think about them as as visual artists before this movie
1: yeah, it's so weird cuz it's like everybody's buddy had the high, like the, had that high eight camera who was like and let's like let's make a movie on the weekend imagine if your buddy was spike jones like, that's Crazy. so annoying. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like, it's one thing to just be like, yeah, it's cool. Like, put, jump in the shopping cart and we'll do a dolly shot with it. It's like really frustrating to be like, man, I wonder if my, if my friend had been Spike Jones, would I be sitting here with you today? <laughs> um, but, you know, like, uh, I think two times in my life, I've seen a Beastie Boys video and been like, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. So, so what you want in Sabotage? And Sabotage, I don't even know if i i don't know if there's a proper way to contextualize like how important the sabotage video was because it was it hit on the the deepest possible comedy level and also was like that is actually super dope i wish me and my friends could go play 70s cop tv show dress up
0: yeah i completely agree i think it's like the purest distillation of irony that i've ever seen but also totally sincere yes. like i don't know I, I don't know how something like that can if you, if, if
1: you can come up with a name like Vic Kolfari, you've seen fucking 170s crime movies.
0: Yes, 100%. Um, what about albums? Because I feel like a lot of people, you're just a few years older than I am. And then I think there are people who are probably a few years older than you who have a similar obsession with the group. I don't know how many people younger than me have quite the same emotional commitment to them. I'd, be, I'd actually be curious to know generationally how they track. But I do think people tend to chart their life by when they discovered Beastie Boys, if if they're fans of the group, what is the what is the album where you were like, oh, this is a thing I have to be close to?
1: Well, I mean, it's hard. It, I you can't overstate the importance of License to Ill in like be, my my childhood. Um, it it became my generation's first favorite album. I think for a lot of people, and also for a young, pubescent, prepubescent boys. Like essentially the dictionary for better or for worse my my favorite records by them were very much uh check your head and no mill communication though because I, I I look at them as a as a piece almost the LA records I know that they made Paul's boutique there too, but I think that those two records are their artistic peak and there's so much interesting music being made in there and also feature their like most absolutely like raw pure songwriting like their best songs.
0: yeah, I have a similar experience on favorite albums i'm given my age i think i was aware of fight for your right to party at a very young age because it was so anthemic and inescapable even at five or six or seven years old but i think the so what you want video if you're i was probably nine mm-hmm. when it came out was transportive
1: was yeah like, did you ever like know what saying, a fisheye lens was before that no,
0: yeah no no, it, uh, it, like it totally captured my attention as a kid. It probably is one of the significant things that got me hooked on MTV in the first place. I wait. I would wait hours watching 120 minutes waiting for them <laughs> to play that video. Um, and all that stuff predates what we view as like alternative culture. It predates Cameron Crowe making singles and, cr- and grunge and rap rock. And uh, they're like so far ahead of the curve on all of that, like, you know, for lack of a better term, like white culture, white alternative culture. It's so funny to think about how they... And they always kind of operated in their own orbit, their own stratosphere in a lot of ways. They were uncategorizable in many ways. But still, I think they were the introduction to rap along with um, The Chronic, which mm-hmm. is also you know celebrating a kind of anniversary of this week because it's been added to streaming platforms. Right. Those two things hand-in-hand in, hand in 91, 92, I just think broke a lot of people's minds. But I'm with you. Ill communication, I think, is like a perfect perfect thing just like a perfect object that will be with me until I die and that that goes for the visuals too and the story that they're telling and the way that you can see them evolving as people the way you've gotten close to them and that that's talked about a little bit in the film Um, the other thing that goes pretty much unremarked upon in the movie that I wanted to hit on quickly is like the yada yada the fact that being a Beastie Boys fan from 1993 to 1999 was like being a fan of MC the MCU there was like a label of other artists you could get excited yep. about. There was uh, a magazine that you could buy and read, which was a really cool magazine that had great writing and great amazing taste, magazine,
1: yeah.
0: Uh, called Grand Royal, and there was a clothing line. There was like there was this whole world, and this was at a time when rap groups Wu Tang, like you mentioned before, also did this sort of thing. They kind of spun up the business of their art into profit. But with Beastie Boys, it always felt a little bit less accessible a little more undiscovered a little bit more like a clubhouse kind of mm-hmm. approach to stuff i always just loved that specific aspect of what they were doing
1: yeah that comes across really well in the movie where they talk about g-sun studios which is the place they built in atwater village in east la or like you know north north in in, in the east side of los angeles i don't know if it's east la um and they talk about christian hasoi and jason lee coming over and skating their half pipe. Guys playing basketball. I think there's a track on a bonus a- track on one of the albums where it's just like the sound of people playing basketball in their studio. It's like the Atwater Village Basketball Association or something, his name is Song. Song. And uh it's great. I mean, you can just you just really feel like friends are hanging out. And you're right. You used to just be like you would find out about skateboarders, you would find out about other musicians, you would find out about how like you would find out about shopping at thrift stores. Like that was like I remember when Ad Rock started wearing like way too small t-shirts with ironic, like, you know, Mount Vernon Girls Lacrosse logos or whatever. And that was like how dudes just dressed for like the rest of the 90s. It was just kind of it was kind of wild. He would just be in one video and that was it. That was a rap. And like, even if you didn't really make the, the direct connection, the, like those were the sort of touchstones, the big bangs for a lot of a lot of different things like how people dressed, how people talked, how people moved, how what kind of music they listened to, what they pretended to listen to.
0: Yeah, Mike D. tells this story in Beastie Boys' book, which is the the predecessor of the movie, which a lot of the movie draws stories from the book. I, if you're a Beastie Boys fan and you haven't read the book, I would highly recommend it. It's a 600-page tome full of anecdotes, deep dives, analyses of the things that they've done. People who they're friends with write about the band. There's tons of photos. There's mixtape playlists inside the book. There's so much cool stuff. But Mike D tells a story about loving wearing Carhartt one piece uh, clothing items in the mid 90s and just feeling like, yeah. why can't we just make these? And then they just start making them. And that's the birth of X Large, their, their clothing line. And like they just they would just spin stuff up like out of nothing. It, it yeah. was like, it's so amazing to think about how, how easy it seemed to come to them.
1: There are photos of, of like Yawke wearing champion sweatshirts in like 99 and like dudes are wearing champion sweatshirts now. It's Today, it's, I know. Yeah, and I don't know whether or not that he, he got that from someone else, but yeah, just like the, the level of influence that they had over, over that kind of extra musical stuff was is just uh, was so wild. Yeah, the, the movie
0: uh, is something interesting for us to talk about briefly because um, I think that it's been received like very warmly, but also with a little bit of skepticism because... It's
1: kind, it's kind of bulletproof because yeah, it, it's so sincere, almost disarmingly so, and even the... Uh, the all the humor is self-effacing and it's, it, 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 it's... So it's kind of like hard to be like, I wanted more from this Beastie Boys documentary when it's so obviously like a heartfelt gesture on these two guys' part.
0: Yeah, exactly. And part of the complication is Beastie Boys have gone to great pains over the years to kind of self-analyze mistakes that they've made. There's obviously a lot of, there's concern about like a kind of sexism and, and insensitivity, That especially on License to Ill. The the band members are really progressive and, you know, Ad-Rock is married to Kathleen Hanna and Yalk was a, you know, hugely involved in the free Tibet movement. I mean, these are guys who are like very politically conscious by the time you get to the late 90s, but also are looking back on what they once perceived to be a kind of mocking of a certain prototype that then they tr- like kind of morphed into. And they talk about this in the book and they talk about it in the movie. But I think you're right, Chris, like the movie itself is so direct and straightforward and obviously such a such an ode to their pal who they lost that I, even if it isn't, exactly the 10 hour mega doc that i wanted from beastie boys and i still would be love to have i i was just personally really gratified to have two hours of them talking about their lives and what they made you know i think that's that's probably more rare than we're willing to give it credit for so i appreciated it if you had to be greedy and you had to say i wanted a little bit more of x what is the one thing that you wanted to hear more about
1: you know, I, I, I. So we should say that the it's no spoiler to say that the sort of the format that they use is uh, Adam and Mike uh, Horowitz and, and Diamond are doing this sort of kind of borscht belt routine, like yes. on Blood the stage. Build. So they're in front of a live audience. They're reading from a teleprompter and they're essentially walking people through archival footage of the Beastie Boys that tells the story of the band and it spends a tremendous amount of time on their early, early New York days. Uh, and it spends a lot of time um not deifying but but just really throwing a lot of like credit and praise on yak. Uh personally, I think it would have just been cool to get a couple of different um settings for their reflections like maybe have some one-on-one talking heads uh with with Rock and Mike D and also maybe to bring in some different voices. I would have been curious to see what say like there's this really cool part right before uh it's like what winds up being their last gig at Bonnaroo and they're in Tennessee. We're filming a music video with Nas and Roman Coppola is directing it. And I kind of was like, I have nowhere to go. So if Nas and Roman Coppola wanted to weigh in here, like I would I would have been fine with that. Uh, but I, I, you can't be greedy in a situation like this.
0: Yeah, I thought of the same thing. I thought, wouldn't it be nice to hear from Matt Dyke and the Dust Brothers? Wouldn't it yeah. be nice to hear from Spike himself, not just as this sort of Antic voice of God man, mismanaging the stage production that happens in the film, but also to hear like honestly what he thought about the group and how they connected, and how they became friends. I think it would be nice to have all of that stuff. Alas, we'll have to settle for this very cool thing. They've always been so good about making neat standalone objects for their fans. Like they had the 100th edition of the Criterion collection was a collection of all of their videos. I've got it. I've got it right behind me on my shelf right now. You know, they have that book. They have this movie. They, you know, I was reading in an interview with our, with our old colleague Amos Barshad and GQ about how they have this huge raft of unreleased material and they're kind of downplaying it and saying a lot of it is bad, but you just know, like if, even if you just go listening to the EPs and the largely unheard stuff that they put out over the years, their worst stuff is at, at worst. Interesting. Yeah. You know? They actually
1: are one of the groups where you're like, I would listen to you guys. Fuck around like yes. there's plenty of times where you're just like I don't need to hear Eric Clapton tuning on on this 70th reissue of <laughs> Derek and the Dominoes. but I actually like be, especially because the BC boys as musicians really didn't come into their own until the middle of their careers it's kind of fascinating to hear them hit that point as as artists so they're not fucking around on our top 5s they're this is some of
0: the most focused shit ever this is some of our favorite music ever um, We'll try to do this in a concise way. We'll try to not oversell our emotions on these shows. But I asked you to give me five songs. I'll give you five songs. Let's start with your number five Beastie Boys song ever.
1: So I I went with Sabrosa, which is an instrumental cut and is basically my hat my uh, cap tip to their musical ability and and their desire sometime in the early 90s to try and turn themselves into the meters <laughs> yeah it's kind of which an amazing no small thing small feat
0: yeah
1: Beastie Boys are actually like pretty good background music if you want check out the In Sound from Way Out which is their collection of instrumental tracks from I think it's I don't know if it goes back to Paul's Boutique, but it's definitely the check your head, el communication stuff on there. And them working with uh, M- Money Mark and Mario Caldado. It's, it's just, it's just really deep, funky shit. It's good.
0: I pick as "So what you want, which will not be a surprising entry. A lot of my, my choices are down the middle and I feel totally comfortable with that. you also have so what you want on your on your yeah. list yeah um, i think between the video and the introduction to it and also the there's a great story in the book that i think adam tells about the a&r who was working on check your head for capital at the time who seemed like a real asshole and a blowhard and who when they visited the offices to ask about the first single was insistent upon jimmy james mm-hmm. and they were like that's cool. Jimmy James is one of our favorite songs on the record, but it has no hook, no chorus. Makes no sense making that the first single. What about So What You Want? And he, the guy was like, yeah, I don't know. So what you want? What number is that again? And then they have to have a ta- cassette tape. and They have to rewind and then fast forward to where So What You Want is on the record. And then they press play. And as soon as it starts, he's like, wait, so what is this called again? And they're like, so what you want? And he's like, this is the one. This is it, guys. And it dawns on them that he's not listening to the tape, that he doesn't know anything. and <laughs> He only suggested Jimmy James because Jimmy James is the first song on the album. Um, but so what you want is like, it's infectious. And it's one of those, like, it's a talisman, I think, for a lot of people my age. Like, if you were into that, you could be friends with a person.
1: You know oh, what I mean? yeah, for sure. And then, and that video, like you said, um, that video is just like, there was black and white and then it was color when that video came out. In yeah. terms of just like, the way in which they captured what it was like to physically interact with a song. What's number four, Chris? Uh, number four for me is Shadrack. Which is, um, I think this is, you know, this is on Paul's boutique, and I wanted to shout this out because I felt like this was a good example of their upping their game lyrically. Uh, so it's basically for me. This is lyrically the version of of all the sampling that they they do. They make all these like little references that if you wanted to get nerdy about it and really break down what they were talking about, you'd see that they were referencing like the Book of Daniel, the Bible b- book,
2: uh,
1: the band ACDC, and a Brooklyn Street Fair in the same song. And if you start to like really get into like the lines that they're doing you start to just kind of put together this whole universe of constellation of references.
0: I also picked uh, Paul's Boutique song for number four. I picked Shake Your Rum. I picked it basically because I think that there should be a party record on this list. Mm-hmm. It's still one of the great party records to me, but it does do a lot of what you're talking about here too, which is... It collides so many of their interests and it shows a lot of depth lyrically. But also, you know, the Abbott and Costello, Three Stooges, Dean and Martin, finishing each other's sentences style of MCing, which is obviously was very important and, and well-known. Like Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five did that. A lot of other groups in the early 80s did that. But it started to fade out as an approach for rap groups in yeah. the late 80s. Yeah, EPMD and Dale Soul maybe a little bit would do it, but for the most part, they kind of like kept that tradition alive, and it's a signature of all their songs. Mark
3: D, yeah. With your bad self running, please. With your bad breath, onion rings. Well, I'm Nike and I'm back from the dead. Chilling at the beach, down at Club Pen. Make another record because the people they want more of this. Suckers, they be saying they can take out Adam Horowitz
0: and the shake your version of the like jumping from lyric to lyric to lyric to to voice to voice to voice to figuring out am i like an ad rock guy am i an mca guy am i a mike d guy whose references do i like the most what are the most interesting did you ever figure it out well i mean i think there's like an unspoken acknowledgement that ad rock is the coolest mca is the wisest and mike d is the funniest quote-unquote funniest Yeah. yeah um and i like i don't know I don't even know if that's accurate, and it probably changes every time you listen to a new song but i I kind of subscribe to that what do you what about you?
1: I think it's ad rock for me uh it has the most memorable lines, and also I just always just got like such a huge kick out of his personality and was and uh, never really lost that punk rock shit like ad rock was definitely the dude who just like flipped off the v m a s after playing as sabotage.
0: that's one of the best moments in the movie is <sighs> getting a chance to see that v m a s performance again it's so so great to see <laughs> what they're just fucking, like. Yes, what a, just like a little miscreant asshole, you know, yeah. invading this very stupid award. And show. I
1: just I think also it's just like his second life as Noah Bomback character actor <laughs> and middle aged just like New York dude is or or just middle aged guy cool dad is is so funny to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be alone Aspirational. There, yeah, there's a couple of. Uh, white guys approaching middle age telling the world that they think Ad-Rock's the coolest guy of all time. It's not, like,
3: <laughs> not, yeah.
0: not, not exactly a shocking turn of events. But yeah, I mean, he's like a role model for a certain kind of dude. And I I, I always liked him as an MC because he could kind of cut through the noise too. He has that super adenoidal voice. Yeah, and just his, like, his, I'm his punch that punch punch kid in the
1: corner. Like that is like, I, you just always remember his his bars. I'm so glad we got you rhyming on this episode.
0: Um,
4: That's
1: right.
0: <laughs> You picked So What You Want at number three. Yeah. Uh, I chose Hold It Now, Hit It.
4: Hold
2: it
0: now. This is my only License hell record.
1: Do you listen to License Still very much?
0: Only half of it. Okay. I only like the real rappy rap shit. I don't like, I can't listen to Five Your Ride or No Sleep Till Brooklyn. But Paul Revere, Slow and Low. Hold it now, hit it. Those are and rhyming and stealing. Like those are among my still my favorite songs. Um, like I don't I don't listen to girls. I don't. I'm, I'm 37 years old. What am there's I really a there's to?
1: definitely a time in my life where I feel like the only thing that my friends cared about were the memorizing the lyrics of Paul Revere, which they did and which I did, and and just l- watching Eddie Murphy concerts. Because <laughs> like that was like the, the the boy brain for like ten years
0: there's something they're about even in the maturity scale too they're, yeah. they're operating in the same uh, with the same energy it's like
1: do you want to listen to Beastie Boys or watch Raw like <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah and hold it now hit it like the segment in the movie where they explain how it came about is simultaneously the dumbest and smartest thing I've ever seen they're like you know on that uh, Leroy Caster song where they just say hey Leroy you know like that, just like that knowing that they just wanted to grab a small piece of something they loved and then a small piece of something they loved, and then a small piece of something they loved, and put it together in a record. It's so obvious. yeah. And yet, I never really thought about it when I would listen to it. Like That was what they were thinking. I thought that they were trying to construct some Mozart-style masterpiece of sonic integration. And they were just like, Here, here's a cool sound I heard once. I'd like it to be in my song. And I, we almost know too much about sampling now and the difficulties of sampling and how you could never make license tail. You could never make... Paul's boutique in 2020 because of all how expensive it would be or how impossible it would be to gain the rights. And there was a Wild West aspect to it. But the actual creation of it is still what's so cool to me and still clicks. Yeah, so and well. there was
1: there was just this whole era where when it was still flying a little bit under the radar in terms of of its litigiousness, the challenge was to do it more and more artfully. And guys really took that as, oh, okay, you're gonna throw the gauntlet down and flip that sample this way and you're gonna do it this way. And now I think. It's kind of more of a like Kanye can afford to buy the Aretha Franklin tapes, you know, and that's how, and it's, Kanye does fucking incredible stuff with samples, but when you listen to like Large Professor or Q-Tip or Havoc do something with a record, it's different. It just felt different back then.
0: I completely agree with you. Um, Let's go to number two. What's your number two, Chris?
1: It's Sabotage. Sabotage. I mean, I don't, like, I don't even know what to say about this song, other than the fact that it it's definitely one of those songs that the second you hear it, the second you hear the opening seconds of it, you're like, I'm in, make this part of my life. Put this on my tombstone, play this at my wedding. It is, it immediately becomes an anthem for, a, like, multiple generations of people who are fans of this band. and i think that it's one of those p- perfect combinations of like we talked about this already but the marriage between the song which is like you know like as as ad rock talks about like he's like i just basically went into a studio booth and a vocal booth and talked shit at the engineer and i didn't know it was going to become like our set closing number but then when they made the video it, it gave it like this whole new layer of hilarity and depth and spice and interest. I, I, I don't know. It, I've never been able to quite figure out like what, how they figured they decided to put seventies cop satire on top of this, like essentially thrash punk song. And then it just became a huge hit.
0: Did you, th- I feel like we've reached the moment now that my dad reached when I was 12. And he was like clapped in his God. And here's why I need to understand that. Right. And now I'm like, listen, children, gather around (laughs) while I tell you about Sabotage and how Sabotage (laughs) changed it all. And like, I I wonder if this music, aside from the like, let's say you're a young aspirant skater and you've got like a fuck you attitude and you're a slight, you you cut school all the time. You could definitely get into Beastie Boys. There's something attitudinally there that you get into. But if you're just like a sweet kid that's on TikTok all the time, does the sound of Beastie Boys, does the sound of Sabotage make any sense to
1: you i think if you're if you're a 12 year old boy it probably does i think that there's got to be something destructively rebellious in people still you know i i think times have changed and i i don't know whether or not that sound really resonates with people as much anymore the loud guitar the 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 attitude that they had it doesn't seem it I, i think people express themselves in a lot different ways now but i I, I don't know. I'd be really curious to find out whether or not 13-year-olds think Sabotage is great or not. I mean, like B- Bill always brings up Ben Simmons as like the perfect focus group. I can't imagine Ben Simmons wouldn't love Sabotage, though. It's a great point. Well, let's bring
0: on Ben Simmons. Ben, what do you think? <laughs> Ben's not here. Uh, my number two pick is also on Ill Communication at shot, which I think is basically... Column A, column B on Ill Communication. Sure Shot is that song, the I'm That Kid in the Corner song that you're referring to.
2: It's
0: got some of the best rhyming that they've ever done. It's got this kind of mesmerizing flute loop as the melodic counterpoint of the song. And... It's the song that was played at every basketball practice I attended between 1994 and 1996. It was on every warm-up tape for all of the suburban kids of Long Island. And I don't even know why that was. I think it was, it was just aspirational. It was just like, if I can hear this song, I'm cool. And if I'm cool, I can be good at basketball. Yeah. And that's a, like a magical power. And I, that's another song too that's like, you, Chris, you play that song at my funeral, okay?
1: You got it. I'll, I'm going to do a solo version like uh, Will Ferrell in old school. <laughs>
0: You're my boy, Blue! Uh, <laughs> uh, we got a deal. Um, I love what you picked for number one, Chris. What'd you pick for number one?
1: Album openers. What a fucking Ricky Henderson right out of the leadoff spot, man. <laughs> Every album has a banger. Even, I think Paul's Boutique is like, so Paul's Boutique is to all the girls. So they go Ryman and Stealing on License Still. To all the girls on Paul's boutique, Austin. and then a run of Jimmy James, Short Shot, and Super Disco breaking through, Hello Nasty. now there's two two schools of thought one is you open your album with something kind of epic and sweeping to introduce the concept that would be like on say like Jay-Z does like the uh, Rock Dynasty intro track on La Familia or something like that or you put your number one single first and then go from there they can do either one they can do either one but like when you listen to these these first tracks like if you're like I'm gonna listen to Obese Boys record never ever ever fucking put it on shuffle if you can take anything from this podcast they really meticulously assemble these albums. And those first songs are always like the absolute crankshot to the jugular. I love that.
0: And I feel bad because we haven't talked about Hello Nasty at all. Hello Nasty,
1: you know, it's considered
0: their last great album. They had a couple more after that. And it was Um, probably
1: like their apex in terms of like everybody agreed that they were brilliant musicians, the most fun musicians we had. And I think that there was that run, that tour, I remember... It was just like it was. It was kind of like you had to go see them. You had to go see the Beastie Boys.
0: Totally, they th- that was their their sort of apex. Maybe not commercially because Licensed ales sold so well, but in terms of being universally beloved and almost yeah. like easing into elder statesmen of the thing, they were like adult
1: even... Adult Ferris Bueller's. It was just like every single group of people liked them.
0: Yeah, and that record is really, really good. It's like way better than any rapper rap groups fifth or sixth album has any right to be. Um, it gets a little bit of short shrift in the film. They obviously have a lot of affection for it. But by the time you get to our, you know, the the hundredth minute of the movie, they don't have a ton of time to spend on it. But it had a lot of big hits. It had a lot of successful videos. And it was on MTV all the time. They were performing at the VMAs. And they had that huge tour. And Super Disco Breaking, also also a jam. Also a jam I might have heard a few times um, warming up. For yeah, the layup games. line,
1: man. Right, exactly. Okay. <laughs>
0: my number one pick is called "Looking Down the Barrel of a Gun."
1: A Sean Fantasy classic.
0: This is in the conversation for my favorite song of all time. There's a there's an eggheaded reason that I like it, which is it's basically the introduction of what would become their sound, which is super sample heavy, super intense, but also live instrumentation. You know, there's I think it's Adrock who's playing guitar on this record, and it also features, you know, this very, very heavy mountain sample. couple of other like an incredible bongo band sample it's like the most propulsive song you'll ever hear in your life if you ever need to soundtrack your next fist fight put on looking down the barrel of a gun it will work perfectly or if you ever need to drive from New York to California oh so this in- is your
1: cannonball run track
0: totally this is what I'm doing the Vegas drive We would just put this on a loop do 110 that's on the 15. That's how I live. Um, <laughs> it's really just one of my. It's one of my favorite things ever, and it's like haunting and kind of like scary. It's a, it's a, it's an unusually like it's a not a happy song. Yeah, as as Beastie Boys songs go, but it's it's just like an amazing creation. Love to listen to it. Um, Chris, any any closing thoughts on Beastie
1: Boys? Can I ask you a kind of like a weird hypothetical? Of course. Had MCA not. Unfortunately, left left, left us. If he, he had not passed away, do do you think that they could have continued to make relevant records? Like, how do you think? Like seeing those guys up on stage at their age, could you imagine a Beastie Boys at middle age record?
0: I mean, I think that they would have. I, I what how relevant it would have been, or what it would have evolved into would have been interesting because they kind of got to their dad phase a little early. You know, they, yeah. they became they became a like a jazz samba band. When they were in their early 30s, mid-30s. Yeah. I mean, I mean, they they really did move through the life cycle of musical creativity very quickly. And so I don't know. I don't know. They they strike me as the kind of guys who would have become like composers. You know, they would have worked on films together. Obviously, Yauk was um, you know, owned a mini studio and was a film lover and a director himself. But I think that they probably would have just continued to do the Elder Statesman role of we're gonna organize a concert, a benefit. Yeah. I would have been I I don't actually know how much of this Mike and Adam do to this day, but it would have been interesting to see them shepherd younger artists or work more. I I didn't get a chance to ask them about what they think of rap right now, but I am always interested in that. And they tend to like blow off questions like that. They're like, oh, we're like in our 50s. It doesn't matter what we think. But I do actually want to know what they think. What what did they think of Juice World? You know what I mean? Like, what did they (laughs) think of something like that? Like, could they get into it? Do their kids listen to it? How do they find themselves? But as far as the records that they were making, I, I found the last two records like very sweet, more sincere than they had ever been. Right, To the Five Burrows. And what at, was the other one? It was uh, To the Five Burrows and Hot Sauce Committee Part 2, which was oh, sort right. of like interrupted in their production because Yowk got sick um, and was released, uh, you know, during a very complicated time for the band. And there's some cool stuff on those records. Like there's a Sandy Gold song. There's that Nas record that you talked about. But it's it's definitely... You know, it's late period stuff. It's like a lot of great artists, late period stuff, which is like you can hear them. It's them doing their thing still, but something has has moved on.
1: Um yeah. I think they would have been a great every three to four years at Coachella band um come 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 through, play the hits. um I, I and I would have been really curious because I guess the reason why I was even asking about it or thinking about it was that in the last couple of weeks, we've seen, these different dj battles on instagram and like some of the older faces from our our youth like premier and and um you know uh teddy riley and people like participating in these things and it reminded me that like rap but it, you know pop music in general but rap in particular can sometimes be cruel to its elders uh they they kind of like outlive their usefulness in some ways and are kind of shunted off and it's like yeah you can come you can play your like five songs and maybe come out as like a guest appearance but there's not a lot of room to keep making Interesting rap music into your fifties or whatever. Uh, as I would have been curious to see them see them try.
0: One of the great things about them is that they're not just rap. You know that they are punk and funk and jazz and calypso and sample stacked. You know paraphernalia like they they really were everything to me. Um, and I think their music is kind of foreverable. You know, it's like there's it doesn't have it, it. It's not dated. Maybe mm-hmm. with the exception of License to Ill. Which feels very much like an early 80s rap record. All of their records, I think you could drop into the atmosphere right now and be like,
1: isn't this crazy how someone made this? Yeah. I mean, like that that was they they made, they took some of the most timeless music ever made. Shout out to Black Oak, Arkansas, <laughs> and they made timeless music out of it. And it still sounds as good to me today as it did when I was 13. Um, which either means I'm old as shit, or they made perfect songs. <laughs> I think both things can
0: be true, Chris. <laughs> Thank you for doing this with me. I appreciate it. Let's go to my chat now with Michael, Mike D. Diamond, and Adam, the King Ad Rock Horvitz.
4: Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I just wanted to make sure you were listening to podcasts on Spotify. Here's how you do it. First, search for your favorite podcast on Spotify's app. They have a library of over 750,000 pods at this point. So let's say you're searching for the Rewatchables or the Dave Chang Show or the Ringer NBA Show. Once you find them, Click on the follow button. That's how you subscribe. Then click on those letters near the top of the app. That's a podcast. All the pods you're following will pop up separated by episodes, downloads, and shows. Wait, it gets better. On Spotify, you can adjust the speed of the pods to seven different speeds. 0.5 times is the slowest. I actually sound drunk at 0.5. You can do 0.8 times. times which is my favorite Everyone sounds like they just had a good cup of coffee And then there's 1.5 times 2 times and if you're completely insane 3 times Anyway, Spotify's app connects directly To many of the best automobiles in the world It even has a CarPlay feature That's pretty cool Best of all, it's free Download Spotify on any device And you're good to go Should you be embarrassed that you're not listening to podcasts on Spotify? Well, I don't want to app shame you But the answer, unfortunately, is yes Make the move. Listen to podcasts on Spotify. Back to yours,
0: Adam and Mike. Thank you for being here and doing this. I appreciate you both. Um, how are you guys doing in quarantine? You holding up?
3: Yeah, I feel we feel very grateful and lucky that we moved to. Uh, I mean, I, I, listen, I hate to not try to sell out New York because we are New Yorkers and we have family and friends there, but. We're also grateful we're not there. We're in
2: California. <laughs>
3: yeah, we're in same. California.
0: Me too. I'm a New Yorker who abandoned New York and moved to California. And it's it's I feel good. Did you guys yeah. um? What have what have you guys been watching? I was wondering if you guys watched The Last Dance as I think about what's going on with you guys.
3: Yeah, definitely. The, I I was just talking about that. Like I just, last year, just last night, I was watching episode two. Um, I, I'm really enjoying it. I mean, I can't separate the fact that like. Yeah, you know, the 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 time span of that documentary, it's like, you know, we're we are in New York City, we're in New York, we're putting out record after record, we're on tour, we're we're uh you know, playing in a lot of these yeah, you know, at that time, like we're playing in a lot of these buildings where the Bulls were playing. We're going to Madison Square Garden and uh watching Michael Jordan crush the Knicks. Um, you know
2: what? Give me a fucking Hubert Davis documentary. Fucking Trent Tucker or Hawthorne Wingo. I want to see fucking Michael Jordan.
3: Yeah, Adam, you really are becoming... Wait, no, I'm going to stop. Why are you so bitter right now about this, Jordan? Listen, goat is a goat. Why do you have to be mad about it?
2: Well, I'm waiting for the Chris Childs documentary. (laughs)
0: But you guys, you guys did license a song.
3: We didn't. We didn't ask ask about. We didn't ask about the best Christian basketball player, Adam. (laughs) Oh yeah, that's right. I shouldn't say that. The Christians will fucking Alan Alan Houston. (laughs) (laughs) Alan Houston. Who? Alan Houston probably still gets paid like two million dollars a year by the Knicks. I bet. Just because.
0: I was thinking a lot about it for the same reasons you guys, though, watching the documentary and then here in the maestro in a later episode of the, the series. I was like, this is wild. How much a closely. Mirrors the time when you guys were so active and getting so famous. Right. So
3: anyway, so yeah. So my point before Adam started hating on Michael Jordan for no good reason <laughs> yeah. because the man is clearly one of our most
2: talented athletes. I will ever. never forget being at Yauk's house and we we're watching a Knicks Bulls game, and Scottie Pippen got a rebound, and he didn't just get a rebound; he got the rebound and then tapped it on the backboard and came down and did an outlet. People play with our New York Knicks. It's not funny. They don't play against them. They just play with them. It's not.
3: I don't like <laughs> that, that. That is true. You're right on that. Because you got something to prove. You're in like the mm. world's most famous arena. You're in Madison Square Garden. You could just beat the Knicks, or you could beat Michael Jordan and drop fifty five on them. You know, or Scottie Pippen and whatever. And the only the only weapon we have, the only person who stood up for us during this whole little John Starks. That's it. I thought you were gonna say Jeff Van Gundy. Jeff <laughs> Van Gundy when he was holding on to Pat Ewing's leg.
2: <laughs> Miami.
3: Wait, which was that Miami when, when that fight <laughs> happened? That was a long time. Was in morning. Miami. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. I mean, that's definitely Van Gundy highlight. Um, but no, anyway. So what I was trying to say, so yes, there's we had this like overlapping parallel, and we and but I what I'm liking about watching The Last Dance is you just realize. Nothing's that simple, it's like it's it's very complex <clears throat> the bulls not you know the the starting five of the bulls are these very complex, very different personalities from very different backgrounds, and then you have Phil Jackson and then you have the g m and you have the owner, and the fact that he even could work as long as well as it did as long as it did is so miraculous you know and and to me, I guess I look at it like that there's a lot of similarity uh. To, to band life in that because ultimately with bands it, it's it is this really fragile thing you know where where you gotta get along but even if you're not getting along even though there's some friction between you that's also good because then sometimes that feeds you know as long as your as long as you're vital in terms of doing this thing together but you also really do have to have each other's backs at the end of the day for people to really push it because otherwise you're not going to feel comfortable really Pushing yourself, whether you're in a band or you're on a team, unless you know you really feel secure that like everybody else has got you.
0: I was as I was watching The Last Dance, I was, and as I was watching Beastie Boys' story, I was thinking about just what how powerful nostalgia is, and what it's like to look back on your life. Like, are you guys comfortable with being a part of people's nostalgic experience at this point after doing the book and doing the film? Like the the look back. How do you feel about engaging with that? as part of your, as part of
2: your life. Um, it's fantastic. You know, that we've made music that people enjoyed and, and meant something to them and keep it with them. And they pass it down, you know, down to friends or whatever, you know, it's fantastic.
3: Well, I would say to put it in ringer terms, like, I think I'm grateful because we're not, it's like our fans, are, it's different. Like people really have this relationship with our music. Which, which sometimes is a little weird because I think it means that they have a relationship with us, but they, but it's really, they have this ongoing relationship with music and it's more about the music being a soundtrack for their lives in different times. So it's not like, you know, I, I don't think it's like just this straight up like nostalgia in the past thing, like say footloose, no disrespect, Kevin Bacon, very nice guy of it. You know, people love the film footloose, Adam, you're probably a fan, right?
2: You know, I don't know that I've ever actually seen the whole movie. I remember Chris Penn breakdancing on the street. <laughs> but I don't really remember much else. <laughs> well, I'm just
3: saying, you know, like I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like falous Vol- is a moment in time and we have like we had we have this time this like shared arc of time and shared like span of history somehow with our fans. So that I, I don't know, kind of we're kind of uh grateful. For, and the fact we, that we, we were and I like think
2: totally we were like totally eighties and totally nineties. <laughs> <laughs> right? Mike? Yeah.
3: Well, yeah, no, I agree with that. But then also the fact that I think that was one of the things that felt good about being on the stage in, in town hall or here in Los Angeles or at King's theater in Brooklyn is that somehow we, we got to do this over all these decades and now here we are, then we, and now we get to stand on stage and talk about it all, and and try to try to make sense of it all, and try to figure it out.
2: Hey, Mike, can you tell your kid to stop walking around naked behind you?
3: he's, not, he's just topless. It's <laughs> fully. out of the warm day. He's a he's an athlete, and you're he's telling an him
2: keep your shirt on. <laughs> you think, hey, Mike, talking about Davis and his kids, you think they're locker room guys or glue guys? What do you think? <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, Skylar, Skylar is, let me tell you, and actually it was this, it was literally this way when I coached, when I coached him in rec league basketball and even AAU, like he's a kid that like, he's just, he can't take it. If you're not as good or as serious as him, he has just no tolerance for you. So it's like, you either have to step up as his teammate, you either have to step into his world. Or fucking
2: oh my God. Cry. I'm going to say real quick, cause we're on the uh, ringer sports network. Mike sent me a video of his kid, showed me a video years ago when he was like eight playing in a little basketball team, you know, his thing. And Tamra was filming it. His wife was filming it. He looks at his mom in the crowd. Someone passes him the ball. He hits a deep shot for like an eight-year-old, turns around, does one of these to his mom (laughs) and then heads up court. It was amazing. Uh, Amazing.
3: Yeah, well, there's also the time that as soon as Davis made it on an AAU team, he, of course, as as the guard started bringing the ball up court, scissored three times, and the coach immediately called the timeout. It's like, yeah, no nutmegs, just no, yeah, yeah, no hot dog and son.
0: Does he get that from you? Does he get that performative instinct from, from knowing what his dad does?
3: I don't know. I don't think. So. I mean, maybe, maybe. Listen, there, maybe there is something to like DNA and influence or whatever. And certainly, and my kids actually, it, it's interesting. They are really comfortable making music. Like they love working on on songs all the time and just and finding finding music and making music. So, but you know, it's also that's the world that they've grown up in. So it, it kind of makes sense, right? That 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 to them is normal.
0: Did you guys like movies about bands? going through the stages of their career before you guys embarked on this? Was that something you actually were into?
3: This is a great question. All right. Well, first off, I have two, two categories for this, since we're on the ringer one dramatized movies that involve like music, especially like a sub sub subculture of music, almost universally, almost without exception suck. Yeah. There's, there are the exceptions. There's the harder they come, uh, Wow, I'm going to, it's going to be a very short list. Spinal Tap, Spinal Tap, incredible. Uh, so there's a few, but in, in terms of dramatized music stories, especially like around a sub subgenre. like yeah. If you want an example of a not so good one, a film that we are in, Crush Groove.
2: Ooh, really?
3: <laughs> it's okay. Crush Groove, I bet you. No, it's I'm bet you. If you were to watch Isn't Crush it? Groove right now. I, bet, I mean, you know, I it's, don't, we've seen, it's I've seen it to be pretty bad. I would think.
0: I, I don't have know. a soft spot for it, but I know what you're saying. Like okay. there's never been a great movie about like punk and the creation of punk.
3: Yeah. I think it's hard to do. Honestly. Well, I mean, there are great, there's great been. documentaries. Like there's, there's yeah. the, the sex pistols. Um, what's the, the great, filth and the
0: fury. Yeah.
3: You know, really great doc. And I felt really in it and it was really satisfied. It was about something that I loved and I felt like I knew about um, and I felt it was very genuine. Oh, I never saw I the Manchester the one. Oh, actually, that's a really good film, 24-Hour Party People. It really interesting film, and really... It's funny, that's that's a film like Spike and Us. Like we, Actually, that was on your homework list, Adam, to watch. You never, I don't think you ever watched it. You're um, not great with homework. Not so much. But it's worth, good. actually, it's worth, in this quarantine time uh to do to catch up on that homework and, and yeah. what no seriously it's it really that is I put in the category of you know we it's funny we that was something we put in our pile of like something we aspired to with this.
0: Who first kicked the idea of doing a movie?
3: Um it kinda it well it came out of, first we we you know we'd done our book and then we had to go out and promote the book. And so we we came up with along with Spike with this idea of doing these shows to promote, um, to promote the book. Um, and so we tried to, you know, the book is whatever, 500 something pages. And we tried to like create this like two hour, more concise arc, um, out of that and started performing it. And as we did it, we realized that, I mean, there was, there was a lot that was hard for us and that was not necessarily comfortable, but we actually liked a, we liked doing it while we were doing it and mostly just like the, I guess just in the theater, it felt good. Like it felt like with the audience, they connected with it, and it and it there was something there was something real that was happening there. And and then and it's like more like we were all looked at each other like, wow, we should have been filming this, shouldn't we? And we didn't film it, so uh, our bad. Um, And then we so then we got together. That was like say at like the end of twenty eighteen, and then we got together at the beginning of twenty nineteen, and just started. Uh, started rewriting and writing and writing and rewriting um, towards the the goal of then doing it, it, going back on stage and then uh, filming it. And then honestly, it wasn't, we thought even when we, after we left, got off stage like that final night and I think Spike too, actually I wish she was on this call. Like I think we all like kind of like left the theater that night thinking that the film was just going to be, uh, a document, sort of documenting that what what was happening on stage and what that uh, was, and then once Spike and Jeff Buchanan and Zoe are editors and they got in the into the editing room, I think they they realized they had to go exponential with it and kind of like I I, I use the analogy of like going from from two dimension to three dimension because they by integrating sort of so much archival material it, it really just like why not bring people into this thing they're not people aren't in the theater anymore so they, they don't it's not like they, there isn't this uh this vibe of us telling the stories so we have it's like go exponential that way because we can
0: what was it like for you guys to perform your lives and not just once but like a few times in that live setting was that weird or different from doing a show
2: Um, I don't know. Like, if you think about it, I don't know if you are, I don't know you, but, uh, you know, most of us tell the same stories over and over and over again. Right. You just, so you, you just, oh, that time, that time that this thing happened or yeah. Oh, then I was with this person. So so that part was kind of easy in a way, right. Thinking about it and being like, oh, these are the stories that we should tell because this is, people might want to know about this in the, in the history of our band. Right but then actually writing it down and like reading a script out loud of the story that you've probably told 50 different times. It was weird. It was weird. But the thing about telling your, talking about your life for the most part is, is uh, what we all do or a lot of us do, or maybe I just do that and I'm an asshole and everybody's like, Oh my God, stop doing that. I've heard that stupid fucking ring story already. Mike, Why are you silent right now?
3: Because I farted. I farted and I was wondering if you guys heard it.
2: Here's my question. That's actually the truth, Adam. I was telling the truth. Here's my question. Lately, Mike, are you a more um, loud fart or like silent but deadly fart? Because you used to be a loud fart.
0: This is important.
3: You used to be loud. Then I feel like I segued into sort of silent but deadly and then I got to a point where there's something you know I was going through some stuff and I was really crop dust a root,
2: mm, and that's crop
3: not <laughs> that's yeah. not cool. It's so good. And thankfully now I think I've really dialed some things that are a lot more dialed on my digestion, honestly. And yeah, uh, you know, just the, the farting straight up is a lot more under. You'd have to actually ask the topless fifteen uh, year old Scarlet Diamond. He'll he'll weigh in very candidly on that. I he'll saw him walking
2: you. around with a bass behind you. What is he doing? No a guitar. Oh, okay, it looked like a well, a yeah, bass yeah. guitar. No, he's been
3: he's been teaching himself uh, a song that's part of his quarantine routine, which I, I am impressed with. He teaches himself a he learns a new song every day on guitar. You mean one song a night? One song a night. Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm kind of am- amazed that the the farting question didn't make it into the show or the book or any of the other any other. Any other... James. Yeah,
3: well, again, again, if it, were, if, if it were just Adam and I and Spike weren't involved, it probably would have. All right, here's a question. Been,
2: Mike, number sure. one fruit, go.
3: <laughs> well, that's hard. That depends on your mood. And also, there's you know it's a big debate around my house, the fact that avocado is a fruit. Like, I love avocados. It's not,
2: not a fruit. question, Mike. Favorite
3: fruit? Isn't it, is, is it technically avocados? To, I don't consider it a fruit. Because of its savory nature, but technically, isn't it a fruit? No. There's a pit. Really? I'm asking Siri. Hey Siri, is avocado a fruit? Let's see.
4: Here's what I found from Wikipedia.
3: Like, ooh, like the like banana, the, the avocado, avocado is, is a climacteric fruit, which matures on, on tree but ripens off the tree.
0: I don't. That's I don't think. Siri. I don't. I don't think you've answered the question. Is avocado the answer? <laughs> He's just dodging the question.
3: Yeah. Oh, okay. So right, you tell fruit. me. What's your
2: favorite fruit? I uh, can yeah, oh. I don't want
3: to say avocado is my favorite fruit. I'm going to say. Um, this is really tricky. A really good blueberry.
0: I was going to say that. A really, really good I'm blueberries. Talking yes. like
3: I'm not talking about like a blueberry from another continent. I'm talking about like a blueberry near you has ripened and local. really good like when you're yeah when you're on like a local like when you're on the east coast or even here in california with certain like when it's really in season and ripe and it really actually tastes like a blueberry okay i, I don't know i don't know if there's anything better in the fruit world
0: adam you have to tell us what your favorite Oh i don't is. i don't eat fruit <laughs> <laughs> set up for that
3: that's
0: some vaudeville shit right there
3: <laughs> that is a great that was a great routine um Classic. uh tangelo orange absolutely
0: okay. now you're just stunting on everybody um
3: all right Right, adam you mean like ten jello, ten said with the Graham nash tangelo instead of the Graham nash accent yeah
0: guys what Especially else did cold. what else did did spike bring to the movie for you
3: um linear linear thinking linear thought you know adam and i would have been i'm I'm not good at um i don't i don't corral myself <laughs> i'm a, i'm a bit all over the place <laughs> so spike kind of rained rained uh certainly reined me in but we yeah we would have been all over the we would have been all over the map and kind of telling it would have stuck to us timeline but we would have been telling stories all over the place and he kind of would he would keep kind of like looking us in the face and saying like all right, what does that mean? Where's this going? Like, what are you trying to say? What were you feeling at the time? So he, he like sort of made he would drag that out of us.
0: One of the things that I really like is like, like the origin story of hold it now hit it, where you guys are literally saying, I liked this and I liked this and I put it together. And this is how we made stuff that we like and made something new. That's something that you could write down in the book. But then when you see you guys on stage doing that and hearing all the sounds and hearing the samples, it gives it just like a totally new energy. When you were writing the book, were you like, shit, I wish there could be like a, an audio component or a visual component that blended all this shit together? Or is it just in the process of making this, you found that you were doing those things?
2: We had a lot of ideas for the book that had things popping out of the book that were audio and visual and all kinds of stuff like that. But uh, you know, cost-wise, those things didn't happen. And then we were gonna do a, a version of the book that had like tons of links and and all of this stuff like a real internet version of the book and then it just we just got lazy to do that
3: <laughs> well not only really that it's actually basically we were excited about that idea and basically I think it turns out people are like, no people want to read they're gonna read a book they want to read a book they don't you guys this might be really interesting to you, but really we'll buy a book they want to buy yes book. and
0: no though like i was looking at the book again last night and adam you have like one of the mixtapes you had from when you were living in la and i just started going through it and just adding those records to playlists that i have i feel like if you had an all internet version of a book the same way that the movie pulls that off i feel like that would have worked I know. I know
3: i i agree with you i just um all right well uh www uh or go to it, it info at <laughs> And um, please email them that because uh, yeah. But anyway, but honestly, I don't think I think the show it was like it was very similar to us in terms of making um, making any of our records. I think And, and same with the book actually. But in that and when I say that, it's like with our records, we weren't great about planning in advance, and it's not like we were we were never the most prepared band. I know that sounds shocking, but we what we're good at is like kind of like talking about influences and we'd we'd start pretty much every record off with like making each other a mixtape or or a playlist or you know later on playlists or whatever of just just stuff that we're listening to and inspired by and like kind of this with this what if, like what if we did something like this combined with this and let, let's try and make that work. Um so we were good at having like that starting point, and it was the same thing with this. Show It was kind of like, all right, wh- what if we could, how do we, can we bring these, these stories that happen again, like two dimensionally in a book and, and, and have them be next level either by us telling it or being in the theater or what we're were the, the video we're showing or the, the, the music that's playing or whatever.
0: When I was growing up, everything you guys were doing always seemed effortless and like spontaneous to me. And the movie shows that it wasn't always that way, but like, it also seems like it kind of was like d- looking back on all this stuff. Did it feel like it was hard when you were 21 making something as complicated and, and meaningful to people? Or was it just like, this is what we like. This is what we're doing. We just, we create.
2: Well, when you, yeah. when you do it it's like hard as like a job, when you think about what people do for jobs, it was very easy. I mean, that's what we, that was our job just to go fuck around. It's a pretty easy job.
3: Well, also, I think the, the I think that you know I mean we're not
2: tarring roofs or helping anyone physically. You know what I mean?
3: Yes, no, it's certainly right. We're not we're not laboring away in the hot sun, whatever.
2: But so it was. Um, it, was uh, it was a pleasure,
3: Michael. Go ahead. No, it wasn't. It was a not always a pleasure, but it was a pleasure. But I think the I think the thing, is especially when we're younger and that's i think what we tried to get across in the book is that because of where we came from both in terms of just being kids in new york like literally being little kids in new york city in the 1970s where things were so out of control that somehow like your parents decided to raise you in new york city you had there's all this freedom that came along with that and so out of that freedom we got to go see, we, and you had, we had music and culture and art like happening all around us. And we got to go to all these clubs and all these shows and see all this stuff. So we always felt like we could just do any any of it. We always felt like we could do it. And then, you know, it's funny. I, I think actually when I look back at it, say like when we were making Paul's Boutique and we're just in this the studio like hour, for endless hours, no, we never thought it was like too hard or whatever. We just were just completely consumed. Like that's that was we were completely consumed with what we were doing. That was the only thing we were gonna do. It was the only thing that mattered.
0: Which which era do you did you guys most like revisiting, talking about, writing about? Like what was the time when you had the most fun thinking
2: back on it? Uh there, there we had a lot of fun. <laughs> I don't know how to, I don't know. There's what there's There was no one time, no one specific time where I was like, oh man, if I could just go back, I would be there. But then I would like to be there too. But then uh, that time was really, that other time though, right? That was, I'm not that other time. A lot of times, (laughs) but a lot of times, fun times.
3: Right. Well, I do agree. I do agree with Adam because I do agree. I think like, oh, we looked at when we first came out to LA, like that was so fun. Or like, even when we were first on tour with, Run DMC, like we're opening up for Run DMC. We're totally accepted into their world. We're, we're actually now, we've become a rap group. We're making rap, rap records. Run DMC are our favorite group and we're opening up for them. Like there couldn't have been anything more exciting uh, in the world. But then, I don't know, but then I also, so it's hard, but then I also think that that whole period of time when we, we built our own studio in Los Angeles called G-Sun on the east side of LA in a neighborhood called Atwater, and um, literally, it, became, it was more than a studio. It was like our clubhouse. And we'd go there every day and we'd just put a record on and we roll a joint. This is our work process. We'd put, a record, we'd put whatever records on. We had a whole PA in the live room and a basketball court and a skateboard ramp. And that we were just there every day, hanging out with each other, literally having fun.
2: Um, I just saw so- my baby boy walk by, Mike. What? i just saw my baby boy walk by <laughs> what's he doing I'm missing, I'm missing was he still topless no davis walked by oh Davis! he wasn't paying by. attention to where he was going
3: no oh i see i see him now he looks like he's got a pillow in his head. is he going for like a slumber party <laughs> what the fuck is he going go fall asleep somewhere <laughs> yeah. he's gonna go hide under your car and fall asleep strange things that happen during quarantine with teens during quarantine
0: was there anything that you guys didn't like going back to and revisiting that, you know, because obviously there's some very personal, very emotional stuff. Obviously, everything you, you guys talk about with Yauk and, and his life and influence. And then obviously the, the controversies and the license to ill and that you guys have reflected on that a lot and talked about a lot during the book tour and everything. But was there anything, even if it wasn't controversial per se, that you were just like, man, this period was challenging and we were not happy. We didn't want to talk about this.
2: No, well, I mean, you know, it's tough. Um, just go revisiting thing mistakes that you made, right? And then to really, really think about those things, and then to actually write them down, and then to actually re- say them out loud, and then rehearse saying them a bunch of times, and then film yourself saying them. It. it was, it, you know, it's. It, ultimately, it's good to do that. You got to face, you know, your mistakes. The only way you're going to learn. So, it was nice to do. It sucked in the moment, but important. For all of there's, there's,
3: I would say that, yeah, the way you put it there, Adam, was good. It's like a lot of layers of cringe. I said that? No, but because you, you're like, it's true. That's what it was a lot of layers of cringe. We had to write the story down. We wrote it in the book and then we had to kind of rewrite it again for the stage play and then perform it in that theater and then watch it back projected on a screen. So it was, yeah, multiple, multi layered.
0: I got a kick out of seeing the Lost Angels clip in the movie. And Adam, me, you've been me.
3: Oh, me too. Yeah,
0: yeah, I bet. Um, and Adam, you've been you've done done a couple of movies in the last few years, but Mike, you're not you're not as much of a movie star as your bandmate. N- no, were you? Clearly. Were you? Are you comfortable in that in that role in that universe I'm, now?
3: I'm I'm comfortable seating the role of thespian to Adam. Um, do you want I'm to talk about
2: how you how you really feel, Mike? Is there? <laughs> I feel like there's a little bit of. Je- it's not competition. It's more jealous. Oh, I'm
3: jealous because I can't do it. I'm not. You know, I'm not. You know, you're a born natural. The jealous ones envy. You know, you're like the. <laughs> the, the I, 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 I don't think you'll be comfortable with this analogy, but you know, a lot of people talk about you oh, being. Oh, demi D, what's up? <laughs> a lot of people talk about you being the Michael Jordan of acting. <laughs>
2: <laughs> really, really, who says that? I want to. Someone saying that? I mean, no, but come on, Mike in the uh, sports, uh, I think of you a more as
3: like I think of you a little bit more as like the Steve Kerr of acting. But hey, I'm not mad at that. What did Greatest what did Biz
2: say? What did Biz yeah. say about me, Mike? Uh, Come on, God. Again, I have to say yes, this. Yes, again.
3: All right, well, well, you said it wrong yesterday. No, what? You have Van Exels. He did say no. you have Van Exels. No, LL said Van <laughs> No, Exels. he no, he was like, oh, he's like, he's like, easy. Like, oh. He's like Adrock had handle. B- Bizmark was talking about <laughs> playing basketball with us in, in the '90s at our studio, where I talked about going, how we put on records and play basketball all the time. And and Biz still like fondly remembers coming to the studio and playing basketball with us. And he's like, "Yo, remember?" Of course, first he started talking about his shots at him. Let's remember. He started talking about some hook shot <laughs> that definitely never <laughs> happened. <laughs> I like, remember I was making like the hook shot. I was like calling like Kareem. Yeah. And we were both like, huh? he's like "Oh, I no, no it wasn't a hook shot. I, I was I was saying off the backboard." Right. But change. But then he Get did the say point. he did say, uh, "You have Hannah like like Iverson." Wow. And Iverson, and Iverson truthfully, though I think Jordan's obviously one of the greatest players of all time. Iverson and I think a lot of people would say the same thing. One of my favorite favorite players of all time.
2: Probably my favorite Incredible. Yeah. That's
0: that's that's bold stuff from a Knicks fan, though.
3: Yeah, but I don't feel like we hated. There's always this like Philly New York thing, but I don't. I don't know. I, I don't. Charles feel, Smith. Maybe it's just because Philly wasn't competitive in those like in the in the like in the Ewing in the like the Ewing glory yeah. years.
2: They rose. I when love Walt died, Frazier, though. right? I love Walt Frazier. You know,
3: love Patrick Ewing. But I'm just saying, like you know, Indiana. Daggers. Indiana, you know, yeah, we had to hate them. Indiana because of Reggie Miller and because it was just, you know, we'd only get so deep in the playoffs and we'd lose. Um, but with Philly in those years, we just didn't they weren't in that discussion the way that Indiana, Chicago, and even Miami was. It's
0: true. Um, I wanted to ask you guys a little bit about yauk who is a, a obviously a massive movie fan and a filmmaker and had, you know, has his own movie production studio. Um, what do you think he'd make of Beastie Boy Story? And, you know, what do you think he would have brought to it?
3: We we've talked about it. I think he I, you know, he was always a fan, always loved Spike and was like a fan of what Spike would do. But I think he would it would be like an hour long. we both we've talked about this. It would be an hour longer and even crazier. And it would probably like include it would include uh Several, I think, uh, completely like biopics that don't even exist, or you know, there'd be like, you know, an eight minute animated foray off into somewhere that would never quite come back from. You know, Yacht would have pushed it even more.
2: Uh, No, there would have been, we would have been flying, there would have been seals, there would have been, you know, (laughs) a lot. There's a lot of, it's just so much. Would have been seven hours.
3: True, I didn't think about that. There would have been like some CGI animals, maybe like yeah. a scene of us like riding dolphins.
2: Yeah, babies typing on typewriters. That you know, whatever.
0: What is what does Hornblower oh, say about ooh, the movie?
3: Adam, wait, hold on. Here's, I, here's a pitch. I to him in years. Can I just? Oh, Hornblower. Yeah, we haven't. He's unfortunately Hornblower hits the wine skin, <laughs> and he makes his behavior very erratic. And though he's a creative genius, it's it's very difficult to work with him or even interact with him now here, wait, here's my pitch there hasn't been like like the baby look who's talking to movie like franchise adam what about you and me doing like as like the co-parents uh-huh like you know with the and with the talking babies like bring that back are, bring that are idea you guys back. the
0: babies or the parents
3: good great question We could go either way. We could be we could be the gay parent, the gay couple parents. One of you is the
0: parent, and one of you is the kid.
3: I should say politically politically correct. The same sex parent couple. Um, Oh, one of us a parent, one of us a kid. Hmm. What if we both were the parents and the kids?
2: See, I thought you were going to say, "What if we did like a throwback '40s like newspaper columnist baby?"
3: Right, his uh, his girl baby. I, gotta get, yeah. I gotta get the story out. I gotta get the story out. Uh, mm-hmm. no? no, that's good. All right. Okay. All right, but hold on, wait. Here's another important part of the the p- p- pitch. Pete Smith, <clears throat> Dwayne the Rock Johnson is the neighbor next door. And he, he's it. always and he's always telling us that we're like parenting wrong. Like he's like, what are you guys doing You're not do you're doing it all wrong. You're not doing it right. I
2: love the Rock. Whatever, if he wants to get involved, that'd be great. I would ra- so much rather co-parent with him than you. <laughs> <laughs> since,
0: since we're talking about movies, guys, let, let's wrap up. Can you just tell me what else you guys have been watching and listening to since you've been in this in these circumstances?
3: All right. Uh, music, a lot of sweet soul music as I played earlier. Also, I've been going back to uh, some a lot of different like West African music. This guy, Kay Frimpong and his Cubano Fiestas. And he is from Africa and I, so I still don't, I need someone to explain to me why his backing band are called the Cubano Fiestas. I get someone has to, I have friends who will explain that to me. Um, movie wise, as, as you brought up and, and I talked about uh, definitely the last dance uh, I've been watching most recently. We, I have to say with my teens, we've gone, we've been, and it just seems to work really well in these times. Uh, with my te- with my teens, we've been binge watching uh, on teen comedies. Like we sort of, or I shouldn't say teen. They're they're let's just say not the most mature comedies. Like Pineapple Express holds up so well. Step Brothers still a classic. Tropic Thunder we all watch. Well, I mean, F- Tropic Thunder was so amazing because of course it couldn't. There's so many levels in which it, it couldn't be made now. Today. Yeah. yeah. And then they really went for it and it really was uh, hilarious. But anyway, that super bad, we also watched, which they, it's funny. I think it's just I was too uncomfortable watching it with teenagers. Like that's why it was less enjoyable to me. Like if I weren't with my teenagers, it probably would have been more enjoyable.
0: Adam, what
2: about you? What are you
0: checking out right now? Um, I'm just doing puzzles. Are you finishing
2: puzzles? Yeah. Oh shit. I have a good. Puzzle that I'll show you guys, but it'll take like two and a half hours to find the photo. <laughs> um Am I finishing? Yes, I'm finishing. Check this shit out. Oh, I just did this one.
0: Oh wow, is that who is that? I can't. Is it is it Clyde?
2: It's it's Walt Fraser and P- Pistol Pete Maravich. Oh, that's that dope. shit on eBay.
3: Yeah, nice. So just, right, just now, no man. no movies no shows. Come on, you there's got to be a show you're watching.
2: Well, I'm trying to think of something funny. <laughs> 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 I don't, to, I, you know, I don't know what the fuck is going on, man. am this whole fucking situation is freaking me out. I don't know. I don't even remember what happened yesterday. I'm just trying to keep my hands clean.
0: You're doing a good you know job. Me? I feel like I yep. feel like the movie is going to make people happy and chill them out a little bit. Which I is, hope so. I that's hope so. that's a that's a good thing. So y- y'all have a lot to be proud of. Oh, I appreciate cool. you guys both doing
2: this, man. Thank you thank you very much take care be safe
0: thank you to beastie boys thank you to chris ryan thank you bobby wagner please tune into the big picture later this week i think we're going to be talking about the top 10 courtroom dramas of all time should be a fun episode me and amanda dobbins see you then